And we have a special guest minister this morning, Asha Praver. Asha and David are our center leaders, colony leaders in Palo Alto. They've been there almost 30 years now and uh, founding members of Ananda. So we're very happy to welcome them here today, welcome her here today. David wasn't able to come. So I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. This week, self-effort, too, is needed. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. These past weeks, we discussed the need for balancing self-effort with receptivity to divine grace. Both are important in the spiritual life. Passive dependence on grace hasn't the magnetism to attract grace. Boastful self-confidence, however, which closes itself off from the higher divine power, is shallow, brittle, and given life's many uncertainties, susceptible to ultimate failure. There is a story in the Bible that illustrates the need to put forth personal effort so as to draw magnetically on the divine power. The story occurs in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 8. But as he went, the crowds nearly suffocated him. Among them was a woman who had had a hemorrhage for twelve years and who had derived no benefit from anybody's treatment. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak. As a result, her hemorrhage stopped immediately. Who was it who touched me? Jesus asked. When everybody denied it, Peter remonstrated, Master, the crowds are all round, pressing you on every side. But Jesus said, Somebody touched me. I felt power going out from me. When the woman realized that she had not escaped notice, she came forward trembling and fell at his feet and admitted before everyone why she had touched him, adding that she had been instantaneously cured. Daughter, Jesus said, it is by your faith that you have been healed. Go in peace. Self-confidence and self-effort are necessary, as the ignition of a car is necessary to the motor. Of what use the ignition, however, if the motor itself will not work? Wise is he who recognizes the real power in the universe and guides his life by that supreme power. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the ninth chapter, To those who meditate on me as their very own, ever united to me by incessant worship. I make good their deficiencies and render permanent their gains. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's been a long time, and I'm very happy to be sharing in this way. 
um, from Whispers from Eternity, number 61. Teach me to store honey of good qualities from all soul flowers in the honeycomb of my heart. In the summer days of life, teach me to gather honey from the flowers of all spiritual qualities that blossom in the garden of truthful souls. I will store the perfume of forgiveness in the honeycomb of my heart, the lotus fragrance of humility, myrrh-scented devotion, the rare honey of all soul qualities. And even though the snowflakes of wintry experiences and earthly separations whirl about me, I shall seek thee in the honeycomb of my heart, where often I have found thee stealing the stored honey of my devotion. Wherever thou hast come, in every place hallowed by thy feet, I will lie, touching thy footprints. Ah, there alone will I find a place of true safety. My, my. This particular story from the Bible is a picture that I, I love to contemplate. I'm sure, given the link between our path and the life of Jesus, that many of you feel like you were there in one form or another. My experience, as always, I was saying to someone last night, I don't think I was very important, but I think I was there. I think I was standing against the brick walls watching, because when these stories are told, they come very much alive in my mind. And I think part of the reason they come alive is because we've had so many privileged years with the great saint, and we've watched how the magnetism around such a one swirls, and how differently his consciousness responds than the ordinary response. In the Finding Happiness movie, there's about three frames of a particular scene that um, I asked Brian, and he says he has lots more of the film, and I'd love to get the whole thing. It's just Swamiji coming in to an Indian satsang, probably in the last year or two of his life. And because the Indians are very conscious of the magnetic power of a saint and the power of darshan and the power even of his touch, Swamiji, as he describes, he can't get in or out of any hall because everyone is falling in front of him and there's no place for him to step. And especially as he became less steady on his feet, it was more than a small consideration because the possibility of his going toppling over onto some of those devotees uh, was very real. What to speak of the interminable time it would take. So they developed a system where the devotees would hold hands, the members of the ashram would hold hands like this and make a human and then they'd make a corridor so Swami could watch, walk through it. So it's just this flash that just comes up on the screen. Uh, many of you may have been there to see it at different times, of the ashramites standing like this, all with white scarves around them, and Swami slowly making his way, and all of the devotees pushing against the ashramites to see how close they can come to Swamiji. So in this story about Jesus, they say the crowds nearly suffocated him. I mean, just think about that for a moment. What kind of magnetism was moving? 
what kind of eagerness for a blessing? Just because these people are shepherds hundreds of thousands of years ago, or whatever they, whoever they were, it doesn't mean that their hearts were any different than the hearts of devotees everywhere. And they suddenly saw in front of them a doorway to freedom. Freedom from everything. Everybody's laughing. Is there something behind me? Aha! I'm not saying anything funny and everybody's smiling. It's very confusing. So what shall we do? That's called upstaging. And it's considered... It's considered very, very poor taste. (laughs) However, I've lost. What can we do? Move the chair here? (laughs) Do your best to pay attention to me. (laughs) Although I feel um, that I would be watching the cat too, so what can I say? (laughs) I was thinking while you all were... I was losing you left and right. I thought... This is an interesting story. Where is everyone? <laughs> All right, folks. There's the cat. I've come farther from a farther distance than the cat. <laughs> the cat's feelings won't be hurt. Mine might. So, there we are back in Jerusalem. And the crowds are suffocating him. And everybody knows that this person... And some of them know why, some of them don't know why at all. They just feel it somewhere in their being. They recognize that something they really want is going to come from this man. And most of them, undoubtedly, are thinking about themselves and their desperation and all the different things. I mean, why would you nearly suffocate this man crowding in to see him? There's other stories of Jesus when he was visiting Uh, some household, and there was someone on a cot that they wanted to bring in for healing, remember? And the crowd was too great, and they couldn't get him in. So they, I love this, they went up on the roof, they removed the the skylights, and then they just lowered him down. And Jesus is there, not dissimilar to me, trying to give a talk, and (laughs) they're removing the skylight, and then mirror right in the middle. You know, this force comes down. But think of the power, and, and think of the Um, the irresistible force that was being exerted. Think of the chaos. Just the chaos of everybody's minds and everybody's desires. You know, Swamiji's unwillingness to allow people to come and, you know, crowd against him and touch him and ask for his blessings in all that way was not because he didn't want to bless them by that point in his life, at all points in his life, but especially then. He just lived to share Master's presence with everyone. He had no other intention. But in all that chaos, um, it wasn't always easy to actually transfer spiritual energy. And it wasn't because the spiritual energy isn't there to be transferred. It's that because when the vibrations don't match, the energy can't go in. If the vibration is pure and still, then that matches the vibration of the Holy One and it goes into us. But if our vibration is anxious and self-concerned, and perhaps, will it work, will it work, will it work? I really hope so, I really need this, this has to happen, what if it doesn't, this is my last chance, here's my baby, here's my baby. You know, everybody brings their babies, suffer little children to come unto me. But then, in the midst of all of this, one woman doesn't even come close. You know, you, you, in all the, at least all the movie versions of Jesus, he's always wearing these trailing robes. 
you know, that's just the way it always is. But you can imagine, I mean, for some of us light bearers, the edge of our robe has caught fire and we haven't even known it. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh. In our church, sometimes people worry about things catching fire because we like to use fire for lots of things. I've always felt, standing here like this, that I'm far more in danger of being crushed by a hundred people who rush up to save me <laughs> than I am to be burned to death, so I never worry about it. But nonetheless, somewhere at the very edge of what this man is wearing, someone touches it. And they even describe it, the very hem of his garment. And something about the vibration completely separated her from everyone else. And she wasn't asking to be recognized, asking to be in front of him, but he immediately knew that something completely other than the suffocating crowds had happened around him. And he demanded to know. And her, her consciousness was such that she didn't even want to come forward until she was forced to. Now, there's such a profound lesson a thousand lessons in all of this, not the least of which is just the magnificent drama of the life of Jesus that we're hearing, but also to, to deeply understand on levels that, that it just takes time. It takes time and experience to pull those feelings you know, farther and farther in, really, into the spine until we understand what it is that we're really doing here in the spiritual life. We're not on the street now where Jesus is walking. We're not even on the streets now where Yogananda is walking or Swamiji is walking. Um, we're, for the moment at least, just among ourselves. But I often think of that particular scene of Jesus going through those crowds as the way it feels inside my own mind with all of the different energies and thought forms and vrittis and experiences and responsibilities are all swirling around. And in the midst of it, there is this constant movement of the Divine Spirit that's trying to literally make its way through the crowd of all the competing inclinations of our own temperament. And the more deeply, no matter what else is going on, we can keep track of that one thread and not think that at all times we're going to be standing stalwart, um, marching forward with nothing impeding us. Many times we are nearly suffocated by the crowd of competing interests. But this woman looked and she saw the Lord himself walking between them and she couldn't get in front of him, but she could stay behind him. And she could reach out and just find that hem of his garment, but with such an understanding of what she was touching, that irresistibly, and this is also the, the beautiful way that Jesus himself says it, power has gone out of me. And I watched Swamiji, especially as many of you did at the end of his life, when it's just all other considerations had just been um, spent, I would say, at that point. He, didn't, he never had worldly inclinations, he never had egoic inclinations, but he had a big job to do. And in the first decades of his life, 
that big job was the crowding force that was pushing into his consciousness, um, compelling him forward. But as all of those tasks began to fall behind him, you know, Anand, the communities were founded, um, the international work was founded, the Bhagavad Gita commentary was written, just one after another they fell behind him. And then all that was left in front of him was, you, you might say, uh, he'd been honed down to his own essence. And the only purpose of that essence then, as he would tell all of us, is just to share bliss. His, his advice to ministers and acharyas of all kinds, just share your bliss with people, he would say. He would say in your own heart, I hope I have enough to share. But for Swamiji, that was all there was left. And he would talk increasingly, you know, every time a microphone was in front of him, it was just a chance to tell us once again about meeting Master and reading autobiography and crossing the country and kneeling before him. And we would think of all the decades of experience that had gone in between. But he had been reduced to his essence. And his essence was, I am a disciple. In the book that I wrote about Swamiji's stories about him, the last story for those of you who remember, when your life is over, what do you want to be remembered by? What is your greatest accomplishment? I am a disciple. So what that means is, I am always conscious of who and what is leading me. I am never lost in the idea, no matter how seemingly the actions are coming through me. I am always conscious of who and what is leading me. And you see, that's what that woman was doing when she was walking the streets of Jerusalem. There were crowds everywhere, but she knew one-pointedly in the midst of all of it that if she could just get close enough to put her finger on the hem of his garment, she knew what was leading her. And he, Jesus by that point, of course, being a free soul, being an avatar himself, he wasn't calculating things. Oh, this one has, uh, you know, given a lot of money to the temple. That one has been sincere for a long time. All those uh, mind-born considerations were, were just gone. They just weren't anywhere in him. He was a pure vibration of spirit, and anyone who had the same spirit could merge with his. And when he did, he felt that connection coming through. Swamiji often tried to help us to understand, you know, even in his life and in Master's life. He said, physical proximity is not everything. Master said rather um, bluntly, a lot of rats and mice live in the canyon where Mount Washington is, and they're not making spiritual progress. Although you have to think they're making a little. (laughs) (laughs) But what he always talked about, and Swamiji tells, tells us this really often, what he always talked about was attunement. When he talked to those who were newer and less committed on the path, He talked about techniques. He talked about philosophy because he needed to win more mind-born considerations. People had to, Americans especially, you know, have to fold their arms and think about it. We're very, um, one of the values in America is not to be taken advantage of. So he had to persuade. 
He had to show people his intelligence. He had to show people the power of the teachings. He had to get them to understand what they were involved with. But once that was crossed, and the crossing of it was once there was a touch of experience, and a person was no longer moving because I read this and seems like a good idea. But a person is moving only and always because I know. And that knowing is so different than having reasoned it out. And that knowing then just can't be shaken by reason. At the end of Jesus' life, when he knew that things were going to get a little rocky for the disciples, you know, to, the, the power of Christ's life was building up. At, at this point in the story, he's no longer an unknown He's healed the sick, he's raised the dead, he's given the blind sight, uh, he's uh, walked on water, he's calmed the storm. The, there's a lot of PR out there. People know that a lot is happening. And there is this uh, uh, sense of ascending power. And at the time, the people who were gathered around him were politically oppressed And part of their mind-born thinking was that this power was going to be used to conquer in an external way. And suddenly that oppression would be removed and many other positive things would happen. But Jesus knew that none of those expectations were going to take place. None. That in fact it would be death and persecution and suffering and um, abuse and humiliation. So he needed to... Uh, sort the wheat from the chaff at that point. It wasn't as if everyone couldn't gain something, but he needed those who were going to have to stand afterwards to not uh, waffle within themselves. So he made it hard. Eat my body, drink my blood. I just, I love that. Eat my body, drink my blood. You have to go back to before the church interpreted it for you. He just said, you must eat my body and drink my blood or you are not one of me. And the disciples said one to another, this is a hard teaching. (laughs) And many left him. Because if it was mind-born, it made no sense. So he turned to his close disciples and said, what about you guys? Peter answered, where would I go? And what Peter was saying, truthfully, fully, was, I haven't the foggiest idea what you're talking about. You know, I don't know what this is. He didn't explain it to Jesus, and Jesus didn't explain it to him. Jesus said, why are you following me? That's what he was saying. What is the basis of your relationship to me? Peter answered, it's not even a relationship now, Lord. Where could I go? You know, your reality and mine. We are one reality. And nothing. Not persecution, not Peter's own failure and the pressure of the moment to have the courage to stand by the one he loved. Nothing could separate him from that experience. All of the spiritual path is really about our ability to perceive. It's really not about whether the masters are great or not and who's the greatest master or anything like that. It's about why do I, why am I on this path? What is the thread among the nearly suffocating, competing interests in my mind? What thread am I following? And do I believe it will heal me? 
You see, that woman knew she was ill for 12 years. Nothing had cured her, and she saw in him that light, in the presence of this light, the healing presence. That's what we say in our, in our prayers, the healing presence of God. And was she asking that her hemorrhage stop, or was she asking for his blessing? Who knows? But she knew who he was, and nothing could keep her from that objective. And in this, she represents all of us. Because all of us, every single day, every minute of every day, Master has that beautiful statement, take care of the minutes, and the incarnations will take care of themselves. The mind rebels against that. Because, well, it's easier to speculate about things than it is actually to take care of the minutes. Minutes are boring, a lot of them, and a little bit challenging, and we get suffocated by other realities. But the the accumulation of a lifetime is minute by minute. Um, I was in uh, Crystal Hermitage yesterday, and we were showing some of the guests, and Diva was there. I said, Diva, when was this built? He said, 30 years ago. No, not 30 years ago. It was yesterday. It was just done. When you stand on this side, the beginning side of a lifetime, you actually think you have a lot of time. And so you spend a lot of time thinking about things that don't really matter. When you look backwards and all of a sudden you realize that a lot of life has just somehow slipped under the bridge and you really don't know where it is, you begin to realize that the only thing that really did matter was just coming back again and again and again and again to that luminous thread of spirit that's trying to be suffocated by all the other considerations and reaching out and, if possible, holding on to the hem of that garment. You know, any one of us who's had the good karma to even for one moment have a true experience of divine power and even the slightest glimpse of what that might mean. You know, what a, what a lifetime. What an incarnation. Just think how many people wander this world. Just, uh, I, I, was, I live, even though in a place that's much less isolated than here, so I'm often in the company of many, many different kinds of people. And sometimes I just look and I think, these people are never thinking about God. They just get up in the morning and think about work and their children and supper and the argument last night and the progress of the soap opera. And it's not so much that I judge them for that, is that I wonder, how can they stand it? I mean, how do they not break from desperation? And I asked Swami that question once, just in that way, when I was first starting on the spiritual path. The answer is so obvious. When you really want God, He comes. But until you really want God, He doesn't. But when you do, you see the power goes out of Him, because your heart and His are the same. I read today on the this day in the life of Paramhansa Yogananda that July 20th, 1935 or 32, was the year that Master initiated Sister Gyanamata 
um, as a sister. And I had been reading some about her life. She was the most advanced disciple of Master. And in some interesting way, you know, Swamiji defined um, our family within the family. Every disciple has his own family within the family. And there's many other direct disciples of Master. Um, But I don't personally feel a kinship with most of them, except Sister Gyanamata. It's like somehow she's uh, the grandmother who died before we were born, sort of part of our spiritual family, something about the way she writes and the way she thinks. And I think it's very touching that she was the first person that Swami met, that his first contact with Master was Sister Gyanamata. And then he also talks about how deeply, because he perceived her, he was an eager young man, and she was a very calm older woman at that point, and his first impulse was to think, and he was humble enough to admit it, she's one of those old ladies that cluster around religious groups and choke the life out of them sort of energy. And he was having these judgmental thoughts about her, And this is when he's on the bus from Encinitas back to Hollywood to meet Master. And he says, but all of a sudden he remembered her eyes. And then he said, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were a great soul. And then Swami says, in that moment he knew he would be accepted. Because he moved away from the suffocating um, forces in his own mind. I want this. I'm serious. No one can stop me. You even think of those as positive friends of yours, don't you? The ones that are pushing you forward and telling you to do it, that this is mine. But in all that self-preoccupied agitation, he hadn't noticed that he was in the presence of a saint. But fortunately, he came back into his center, and the presence of that saint came to him. And in accepting light when it was given to him, Swamiji knew that all the light that he saw would also be given to him. He touched the hem of the garment, and the Master knew power has gone out of him. Whenever we doubt, whenever we have our weak moments, this is why people read the Bible day after day after day after day. Those who are dedicated only to that expression of revelation, my first thought was, how can they read it day after day? But then when you start doing it, each time you do, you see that you are in the company of divinity. And the power of that divinity will move into us, as St. John said, if we receive him. That's the only condition St. John put on self-realization. To all who received him, he would give the, to them, gave he the power to become as he was. That means all of us. If we simply find that thread, follow it, grasp the hem of the garment, and hold on. God bless you.